Marriage on a Tightrope supports couples in strengthening their mixed-faith marriage. Visit tightropemarriage.org to make a recurring donation and learn more about the mixed-faith community. Hi, everybody. Alan here. Before we get to the interview with Gina Colvin and Nathan McCluskey, which we are so excited actually finally happened, we wanted to let you know that Marriage on a Tightrope has been nominated for a Brody Award in the category of Best New Podcast. It might seem like a super silly thing to get excited about, but we are excited because it's it's an indication that the podcast is resonating with lots of people. You can vote over at MainStreetPlaza.com, and you'll see there also that we're joined by Radio Free Mormon and Bill Reel, who, not surprisingly, are both nominated for multiple categories. So head over to MainStreetPlaza.com to vote. And now, on to the interview. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Marriage on a Tightrope. This is Alan. And I'm Katie. And we're still married. We are joined today <laughs> by Gina Colvin and Nathan McCluskey. Thank you so much. We've been so excited to have you guys on. Oh, thanks for having us, Alan and Katie. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> I just have to say, and I warned them before we started recording, I was going to do this. But when we first set this interview up, Nathan reached out to me on, on Facebook uh, Messenger and I was like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll interview you. Um, uh, is your wife on board? Is she okay? And who is she? And then I go to your profile and see it's Gina Colvin, and I go, oh, my gosh, okay. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. And then I think, all right, I'm intimidated. She's brilliant. I love what she does. And then you go and get interviewed by, by John DeLynn, Nathan, and I listen to that whole podcast, and I go, <laughs> oh, my gosh, we are in big trouble. He's just as brilliant as Gina what are we going to do? You know, we have a few <laughs> friends that we're going to interview, interview you. And they're like, Oh, you've got the interview coming up. And we said, yes. And we just said, we're, we'll make as few remarks as possible. Cause you both are so well-spoken <laughs> and very intelligent. And so we will give much of the time over to you. <laughs> oh no, no, no. It's all, it's just all bluff. It's all bluff. Alan and <laughs> very, very flattering. Thank you. <laughs> no, you guys are great. For those who are, are listening um, w- with this interview, I think is very unique because uh, both Gina and Nathan, as we, we just said, have, have very, have very strong voices in this, in this space. And just the, the religious, the, the Mormon, the LDS, the, Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saint space. Uh, many of our listeners who uh, aren't in the the Facebook groups and listening to all the podcasts may not know who Gina and Nathan are. So I think this is a very unique opportunity for uh, Gina and Nathan to tell their story to uh, at least a portion of our audience that has no idea what you've been through. Uh, so it's a very unique uh, opportunity for us to chat today. So I think going right along with that, let's go ahead and have you guys at least introduce yourselves. Uh, tell us who you are, where you live. I think that's unique. You've got a little bit of a different accent. Than yeah, that's right. And, <laughs> uh, then, and then just, just about how you met, just a little bit about you. Oh, wow. That's a really long story. Depending I know, on right? <laughs> you know. That'll take us through the whole app. That, that right. that would, I'm going I'm to jump in and say that we've pretty much known each other most of our lives. We grew up in Christchurch, New Zealand, in adjacent wards and then in a similar and, and in, then in the same ward. Uh, Nathan, before his mission, was my first husband her first husband's uh, executive secretary. He was a bishop, a very young bishop I might add. So um, like just so as not to age me. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> too much. I think I was still a teenager when he was called as a bishop. No. Oh, maybe my early 20s. He was 22, so you were 21, I guess. No, no, it's three years between us, so he must be 24. Anyway, beside the uh, point. No, the, no, the don't calculate. I remember the late 90s too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we live in Christchurch, New Zealand, where we grew, where we grew up. Uh, when Nathan returned home from his mission, he had uh, a revelation that I should be the one. And I'm thinking, oh, dude, you're in la-la land. And I, <laughs> I, if I had a dollar for every person who said I've had a revelation that I should marry you, I'd be really different. <laughs> I just thought he was a crackpot. Um, <laughs> still do, really. <laughs> <laughs> She's not wrong. But I took a pun and it's been it's been pretty good. It's it's got better. Uh, and just to say that we have very much differentiated in terms of our faith journeys. Yeah. Um, and that's been an interesting story in itself. Nathan, mm. uh, talk a little bit about kind of the before you met Gina, what what does your kind of background spiritually or involvement in the church look like? Uh, so I, I was raised in the church. My, um, my parents, because of my, my father's kind of interesting relationship with the church was kind of on again, off again. Um, so there were periods of inactivity and activity. Um, he was also not particularly well. So we, so there were periods of time we didn't go to church cause he wasn't well enough to go. Um, and, um, so it was, it was a bit mixed in that regard, but, but I was always, you know, associated with the church in some way throughout my, my upbringing. Um, I had my, what I guess what I would call my um, epiphany event that, that brought me to conversion uh, when I was 16. Uh, it was my final year of seminary. I was challenged to read the Book of Mormon. I did that and, and received an answer, which was overwhelming and undeniable for me. It was really, uh, only one of maybe five visions that I've had in my life. Um, and I, and that, that set me on a path that meant that I've, I've remained active in the church ever since. So as a result of that, I, I served a mission in Melbourne, Australia. And I, I've known Gina pretty much my whole life, but she's four years older than me. So, so kind of when I was a teenager, uh, like in my early teens, she was in her, her late teens. So while I, I always thought she's quite attractive, she never really looked at me in that way. And then she got married and as she said, I became the executive secretary to her husband, who was the bishop. And when I returned from my mission, while, while I was on my mission, her and her husband split up. He, he had an affair, was excommunicated. And when I returned, the new bishop who replaced him called me as his executive secretary as soon as I returned from my mission. And he said, the first thing I want you to do is organize for Gina's ceiling cancellation. And, uh, because I, because I was his executive secretary and I was pretty close to him when I was on my mission and I, and I heard that they had separated, I kind of thought, well, it's probably Gina's fault because he's, he's the Bishop, right? He's a great, he's a great guy. It wouldn't have been him. And I just, I remember her being quite strong and bolshy and opinionated and a bit pushy for a woman in the church. And I don't know why you're looking quizzical, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have characterized her that way. <laughs> <laughs> and and when I got back and I and I was given all the paperwork to work to work with Elder Pullman on the cancellation of ceiling, I, I, I saw the full story and what had really happened and it, it 
turn my heart towards her. And that was, that was important in terms of um, me thinking um, about Gina differently. But really in, in terms of us getting together, that my really thinking, my thinking about that uh, didn't really occur until a bit later. Uh, but we're talking about short time frames. We, I mean, we were married within three months of me coming home from my mission. So wow. this wow. all happened very, very quickly. Uh, so yeah. Um, and, and that, you know, one night we had a, an interview with the, or she had an interview. She was having ongoing interviews with the replacement Bishop, just kind of pastoral care. It was pastoral care. What was he it? He was a bit sleazy, actually. He always wanted to have special hugs. Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it in, Gina. <laughs> well, he was—he wasn't so sleazy that he didn't ask for me to be at the stake centre while he was interviewing her, so that they wouldn't be alone together. So I think that's to be noted. And after one of those interviews, he said, "Hey, let's go out for pizza," and we went out for pizza and. That was the first time I think really that I started to kind of connect with Gina on a more personal level. I, I found it interesting. You know, we were sitting there, we were having pizza and Gina made a comment which kind of stuck with me. And I guess being reasonably young and naive, it, it shocked me a little bit. But she said, the last time I went out for pizza with the bishop, I had sex with him afterwards. So, I mean, she talks about him being a sleaze, but, you know, I think, you know, it was going both ways. <laughs> um, wasn't that Bishop, my husband Bishop. It was, it was her husband yeah, Bishop, right, she was talking about. But I thought, wow, you know, she thinks about things a little bit more openly and differently, and I, I, I found that appealing. But our, our experience in, term, in terms of me realising that she was the one kind of came about um, through a, uh, a second ex an experience that I had where we were sitting in gospel, sorry, in a young adult gospel doctrine class, and she announced that she was going to move overseas after the Sunday school teacher asked her if she could teach for her while she was away. And Gina said, well, I can't, I'm, I've already got my tickets. I'm moving to Australia. And a, a voice very clearly said to me, stop her. And so much so I turned to look who was speaking to me and there's no one there. And, and I realized it was the voice of God. And so I said to her, I need to talk to you about something after the class. And I told her, I, I just feel to tell you, you shouldn't go. And she said to me, why do you like me or something? Do you want to have a fling before I go? What's this all about? <laughs> and and uh, I said, I really don't know. And that afternoon I, I went home and, and I spent the afternoon, kind of, kind of an Enos, Enos afternoon on my knees. And I had a vision of our life together. And that was the second vision I've, I, I've ever had in my life. And as a result of that, I knew she was the one for me to marry, but I didn't know how to tell her that we hadn't, we'd not dated. She was, you know, older than me, a lot more experienced. She wasn't what I'd imagined I was going to marry. I was thinking of, you know, like a, a younger, straight out of young woman's kind of a virgin. Yeah. About my age or, uh, and, but I hadn't, you know, I hadn't imagined marrying a divorcee, but that, turned that on its head and so then it was a case of how do I convince her she's older she's sophisticated she already had a, a university degree I hadn't been to university at all I had I was I was unemployed I, I you know and I really didn't have anything to offer and so I, I didn't know how that would go um, but the next day was her mother's birthday and she invited me along to that to her birthday party and that it was Oh, no, sorry, that was that same day, wasn't it? That evening. 
the evening of that I Sunday. I tried to keep this short. Sorry, I'm getting too, too deep. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. You can edit it out later. <laughs> oh, it's great. <laughs> and so I went that evening, that's right, to her mum's birthday, and, and we just chatted and, and had a nice time. And the next day was Gina's birthday, her birthday's day after her, her mother's, and she invited me to her birthday party, and I couldn't go because I had another commitment. But I thought, I said to her, I'll come over later and I'll, I'll, you know, give you something. And I went to the florist that day and I thought I'll get her some flowers. And the florist said to me, uh, she was complaining that she just lost her boyfriend and, and how sad she was. I said, well, you think you've got problems, but I've realized that the woman that I, I want to marry is moving overseas to live. And she said, well, have you told her? And I said, well, no, I barely know her really. And she said, you have to tell her. You, if you don't tell her, you're always going to regret it. You won't know what would have happened. I said, you really think so? Like, I don't think she's going to go for it. And she said, no, you have, you have to take your heart out. You have to present it to her with the risk that she might throw it on the ground and jump all over it. And <laughs> but she said, if you don't do it, you'll never know. And I thought to myself, she's right. I have to tell her. So I said, okay, scrap the flowers. Give me a red rose. I'm going to tell her tonight. And so um, I went over. She was watching the Barcelona Olympics men's diving, which she seemed quite intent on. And I switched that off and I, I told her and she just laughed at me and uh, said, you know, I, you know, she patted me on the head, said, you know, I think you're very sweet, but you're barking up the wrong tree here, buddy. <laughs> and so that was, that was how the lead up to me telling her that I wanted to marry her and, and it didn't go so well. Mm. <laughs> But then it went well, and then we got married. Well. Then it ended up going well. Right? And, and mostly from my perspective, it was I, I wanted to marry astrologically correctly. Uh, I had married a Scorpio. Bad move. Uh, I'm a fire sign. I'm a Leo. And it wasn't until after it all fell apart that I realized what a stupid decision that was. Uh, and I thought an Aries would be good. And I discovered he was an Aries. I thought, yeah, I'll do this. We're both Aries We're both as well. Aries. Hey! Wow. Nice. So when's the birthday, Nathan? April 14th. All right. March 23rd. What do you got? Third, March 29th. April 3rd, March 29th. Yeah. Nice. Wow. So you have birthday weeks. Yeah, a full week. Full We're week. headed to California for our birthdays this year. Yeah. Nice. Bringing the kids, though, so it's not, not really quite a that great, but you know. <laughs> Um, and can I just say, can I say, because I mean, this is going out to people who are interested in marriages. Yeah. What I suggest you do is actually just get real and understand where you are astrologically. Yeah. Uh, because some of these marriages are just never going to work. Like a fire sign <laughs> and a water sign. Just like, ditch it. Okay. It's so just not. <laughs> you know what you're saying. Okay, you're how, how, do you, how do you, you just, do you go, is there like something that you Google? I, I mean, I am so out of place with this. I don't even know where you go to look for it. You're a Goodman's well, love signs. No, Linda Goodman. Linda Goodman. I, I found yeah. Linda Goodman's love signs, which is a little dated now, but you can find compatibility, astrological compatibility. You should be a five, nine vibration or a three eleven. That is, and let me just say very quickly, because this is really important marriage information. <laughs> um, every sign has an element of fire, earth, air, or water. Uh, fires go with fires. So Aries, Leo, and Sagittarius are good combinations. Perhaps not both together, but it works. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. And then there's the water signs, uh, which are 
um, Pisces, Cancer, and Scorpio. And then Earth signs, which are Taurus, Virgo, and another really boring one. Oh, Virgo. Virgo, Taurus, and what? Capricorn. And then there are the air signs, air are Gemini, Aquarius, and Libra. Air and fire will go well with each other, and earth and water will go well with each other. But try not to mix those other elements. Fire and water, nah. The fire and fire, we're, we're trying hard. Oh, fire and fire. Fire and fire is kind of good. Mm. It's but fun. there is areas, it's, it's a little challenging. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> ironic because uh, my grandmother was a cancer and she actually died uh, by a giant crab. So, What? Bad joke. It's a bad it's joke. It's a bad joke. Sorry. All right, okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say she died of cancer. Right. I that's, so it's, that's that was the old, the old astrological switcheroo there. <laughs> I see. So um, you, had a, you had a question, I think. Did it slip your mind? I, I think, oh, okay. So I was going to ask Gina, what reservations after going through all of that with your first husband did you have in finding another partner or were you even interested in finding another partner? I was interested in resolving a relationship that I had through my teens. He had lived in New Zealand. His father was the mission president. And he had lived in New Zealand uh, while he was mission president. They were from North America. And he went on his mission and I did the Dear John thing, which I regret uh, and regretted at that time. And after my separation from my first husband, we got in contact with each other again. And we were toying around with the idea. But he comes from a very, very conservative Mormon family and hugely a very prominent Mormon family. Uh, so there were questions of whether or not I would be accepted. I certainly wasn't of the stock that they had hoped for. Now I wasn't virginal. Uh, now I wasn't, yeah, and I was a New Zealander and I'm brown. So there were a lot of hurdles to overcome. And for him, I realized that it was, it was just became insulting uh, to me that these were the things going through his head, but I still felt I needed to resolve that. I wasn't interested in marrying a Peter Priesthood again. Mm. Nathan, I saw as a Peter Priesthood and also very young and immature and callow and just a return missionary. And I had had it all out for kind of missionaries and their kind of stupidity <laughs> um, and, their, and their shallowness and arrogance. Um, so on so many levels, he just wasn't, the, wasn't what I was interested in. Mm. But I'm glad I married him. I'm I'm glad uh, you did too. <laughs> I think he's so glad it's, of everyone. <laughs> it's been a slow burn. <laughs> it's taken 26, 26 years to get there, but it's nice that finally she said it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, know, I mean, I'm going to be honest. For the first many years, I was like, I'm not sure I should have married you. So he had to be an Aries to cope with that. Right. I think she still has those moments. Those moments. So a, a very serious question, Gina, um, mm. and I'll preface it with a very, very short story. But a little over a year ago, I was teaching in Elders Quorum. I felt the way I do now about the church, but hadn't made that publicly known. And the entire lesson was, why do people leave the church? And without mm. tipping my hand on what direction I wanted to take that, um, that conversation, I asked the class, just list all the, all the reasons. And one of the reasons came to mind when Nathan, you were, you were talking uh, about this story. 
And one of the, the elders in the room said, you know, I've got a buddy whose wife cheated on him and he used that as an excuse to get angry at God, to get angry at the church for how it was handled. And he used that as an excuse. Mm. Now, I could really dig into why that's not a, a great example. And actually that we spent the rest of the, of the, the hour talking about why some of these reasons need to be dispelled. But Gina, if, if you could talk a little bit about your, that the first marriage and how it, how it happened and how it ended and how that shaped kind of your, um, your view of patriarchy or your relationship with the church, if it did impact it, uh, that type of thing. Mm, that's a good question. I, I don't think it was a marriage that should have happened. Mm. I think that there are a lot of Mormon marriages that happen simply because it's coinciding with the impatience of youth, but also uh, there is a huge discourse in the church about the sanctity of marriage and how that should be a goal. And for young women who, aren't, who are neither encouraged to go on a mission or to seek an education and carve out a career and a life plan for themselves, sans children and husbands, um, marriage is obviously the most socially condoned arrangement that you can make. You get lots of celebration right. for wanting to be married and for being married. So I was in that space, in that very youthful space of feeling really urgently into my need to make a decision and having to wait for a missionary. And then when you're 18 and 19, waiting for two years is a really, really long time. And I wasn't sure I really wanted to marry this guy anyway. And so this guy, Richard, came, oh, whoops. <laughs> we'll, we'll take that out. We'll take it out. We'll call him Dick. Dick. <laughs> it's fine. He won't listen. Um, so Richard came along and um, he seemed nice enough. He was a new convert. He was a friend of a friend and very earnest and in his own right, a, a, quite a nice person. You liked him, didn't you? He yeah, was, yeah. He was funny and uh, really, really bright. I liked that he was super clever, uh, but it was just on a marriage that ought to be. But he was a tiebreaker, right? It, he dealt with the existential kind of wasteland of what it means to be between young women's and being an adult woman. And so, uh, yeah. What was your other question? Oh, I and, and it was just a marriage that should never have happened. We were at odds with each other all the time. We just, it was, the, I explained like a chemical reaction. Mm. It, just everything he said irritated me. And I think everything I said irritated him. I'm aggressive, aggressive, and he's passive aggressive. So the more I spoke up about things, the more he withdrew into himself. And so it was just doomed right from the very beginning. And then a woman came along and she was kind of an arch feminist sort of femme fatale uh, person in the community who had seduced a number of men and he was easy pickings. Right. Uh, and I feel really sorry for him. I mean, I don't think that that was, I think that was, um, and I understand why affairs happen and I understand that often it's not just about having someone to have sex with. It's the need for intimacy and affirmation. Uh, and it becomes a, f like a full guy for 
a lot of the inadequacies, your personal and emotional inadequacies. I have a lot of, um, what do you call that, the kind of sympathy and empathy and compassion for people who are so emotionally confused uh, that they use another person right. uh, to deal with their, their pain and their loss and their suffering. Uh, I mean, it's not nice. It's a horrible, horrible thing to happen. Right. But uh, I can understand why. Mm-hmm. So, Kevin, I'll be grateful for that understanding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I guess the question, right, is uh, did that experience play into your long term uh, relationship or view of the church? Or was that just another milestone in life that was terrible to go through, but it, it really didn't lead you either direction when it comes to the church? That's a very good question. I think what it did, it took me from a naive faith to a more complex faith. Uh, sorry. Yeah. I just, I'm squished in here. So I, I realize that we're both squished in. Just this deal. is more comfortable. I'm, I'm dealing with it. Okay, just stop making noise. I just dealt with it. Creak, creak, creak. Anyway. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> this is why it should be video of a broadcast, right? That's all right. Um, it, it really did. Uh, one of the issues that I had was that it wasn't handled the way it should be. You know, when it, this kind of thing happened, and, and we're dealing with a bishop here. So it had greater implications. Yeah. So I naturally went to the general handbook of instructions and thought, okay, so how should this be hap- How should this be dealt with? And we're talking about the early 90s. And he should have had a, an immediate, he should have been released immediately. And he should have had an immediate church court. And I'm not saying what the outcome should have been. I was not listened to in that situation. So I realized an actual fact, all of the effort and the motivation of the church was going into preserving him and his membership and his mana. Uh, and I had to, I had to eat scraps and nobody was listening to me. I said, look, he's having an affair and they would considering me to be an overwrought woman who was making things up in their head in her head. Uh, I said, you need to have a church discipline for him. And they refused to. And I think this had come under Ronald Pullman's advice that everything is done to help him and preserve him intact. So for three and a half months, he was having an affair, but he was still a bishop. So this, It was really, really tough because this put me in an interesting position because this was my ward community and my family community. And there he was presiding, making goo eyes at this woman. And it was very, very confusing. But I think when I look back, I think that I had looked often to the church to resolve a lot of these Difficulties, you know, the, the church was the place you go to to figure out how to manage a difficult situation. But there was nothing, like literally nothing for a woman whose husband was a bishop who was having an affair with somebody who hadn't been released because his seniors and his upline felt more 
connected and attached to him than they did to me. Where do, what do you do with that? Right. Where's the handbook instruction? I, I mean, I literally looked through every Ensign article to find something that matched this. And I realized there was nothing. <clears throat> and all I had was my relationship with God. And I think that's when my relationship with God really took off mm. and became its own thing. So, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. So if you could take us from the beginnings of your marriage to uh, up to, to whatever point, I know it's a process and there's no one specific point, but to that point where you find yourselves today, right? You find yourselves, you, you both feel and believe very differently about the church itself. And we, I really want to make sure we save time to, to talk about, uh, I think, uh, Gina, your, your views on God and faith are beautiful and I want to see how that impacts you too, Nathan. So I'm sorry, I asked like 12 questions at once, but, but uh, <laughs> kind of take us through those, those years that, um, where Gina, your, your faith kind of goes away from Orthodox uh, belief in the Mormon church. Hmm. Okay, what, what are some of those things that are important to you? And if you don't want to speak about it or decide, Hey, let's just talk about where I'm at now and not necessarily spend the, the 20 minutes to, talk about the journey and events that led you there. I think that's where we, we focus a lot on this podcast is there are differences, how we make it work in spite of them. I mean, I think this is a really valuable question and it causes me to reflect. I didn't have the language of orthodox and unorthodox. Mm. I didn't understand what was happening to me. All I knew is that I married somebody and he was shocking uh, we get married and there is an orthodoxy to him that I was immediately shocked by. And I'd known him all of my life. And I think this percolated while he was on his mission. Uh, and so his whole life he wanted regulated and dominated and informed by church practice. And I had not been raised that way. My mother was, I didn't live all my life with my mother. I was adopted into the state president's family. And I say unofficially adopted, but I was considered one of theirs. That was that my adopted mother was, she's American and she was a BYU graduate from Seattle. And she was very, uh, she was orthodox in her own way, but nothing like Nathan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and then my foster father he was a very liberal state president. He was a feminist and, uh, he was, uh, what do you call that? Uh, converted. He was converted later in life and quickly called as a state president. He was a historian as well. So, and he had a lot to do with, because in those days, state presidents would all go to general April general conference. So he's a pretty well-traveled academic anyway and a well-written academic, but he took an interest in Mormon church history. And so a lot of our conversations, I remember them really fondly late at night talking about Mormon history. He would bring the, he was friends with Leonard Arrington. He would bring the latest Eugene England home. The only language I had was Leah Hona and Ein Rodder. So that was the only way I understood it. And in our, when our, how I grew up was formed in the elders tradition. We preferred the, the Leah Hona way. So... And that was from, if you don't know, that was a, a metaphor used right. by mm -hmm. Eugene England. 
So that was the kind of life that I was percolated into as a young person, as a youth, and into my young adult years. So when I married Nathan, like I say, it was it was a, a full-on shock. Uh, and I think that comes from his naivete. I think it comes from the way he is as a person, but also his youth. He's very much younger, and he didn't have the experiences that I had. It was for him. It was a. It seemed like a more of a straight run. Yeah, and so Nathan, as you, as she's explaining, kind of that, she is kind of shocked into uh, the, the orthodox way that 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 you live your faith uh, in the church. Um, was there an equal and opposite reaction <laughs> to? Uh, uh, to the way that, that Gina approached her faith? I'd seen some of Gina's ability to challenge and, and to do so strongly before I married her. But I guess I was willing to, because of my love for her, I was, I was willing to kind of set that aside and think, and my, my thought was, a, I know that it's the right thing to do to marry her. So, so the Lord will take care of that and we'll be able to work, whatever it is, we'll be able to work it out, which has ultimately been the case. It probably just took longer than I'd anticipated and it hasn't gone in the direction that I anticipated either. So uh, probably the extent of Gina's reaction to my orthodoxy was more extreme than I would have anticipated she would get very angry, furious, and she's a very passionate woman. So um, that that meant that we would have, she would, you know, shout and yell and swear at me. And, and I would. And I would. <laughs> and, I would and, and, and as a result of that, I'd withdraw and put up my walls. Right. Like, yeah. And. To be fair, though, I don't know that we knew what we were arguing about because we didn't have the language. Mm-hmm. We just knew that there was like a huge ideological difference between us. And it wasn't that my unorthodoxy was, sorry to interrupt you, you can carry on no, a second. Right. It wasn't that my unorthodoxy meant that I wasn't like keeping the word of wisdom. I was a temple recommend holder, uh, fully faithful and serving in the church. I just had more flexible metaphors of the divine. I just saw church differently than he saw church. And, uh, and I wasn't beholden by curriculum and policy. I always thought, well, if it's not going to work in this situation, uh, let's just dump it and see what the intention is behind it and, and, and try and approach it from another direction. But Nathan's faith in the system was so um, complete. complete that he thought that every question that came up in, the, in, a, in a curriculum material ought to be answered, and there should be a church answer for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that attests to his, uh, I suppose, the simplicity of his faith and also the simplicity in, of his life. Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you may be overstating the case regarding the simplicity of my life. I'd built simplicity into my life to deal with dysfunction that was happening in my family, I think. That was my protection. That was my safety. That was my security. And the church, you know, I, I could see that in the church. I could see a mirror of that simplicity in the church. Like if I just if I do these things and I, I follow this, um, my leaders and, and the scriptures in the handbook and how they line up, um, and if they don't line up, 
just whatever your leader's telling you, then, you know, that everything will be fine. And for me, it was like my experience in the church was, was, a, was uh, largely affirming. It was empowering. It was uh, rewarding. And so it worked for me. Mm. And so I thought, well, you know, it should work for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so, when, so Nathan, when you, when you recognize uh, that it's not working for Gina mm. and you have that thought of, but it, but it should, it should work yeah. for everybody. Yep. Talk a little bit about, especially now for those that don't know, um, Gina's public, uh, face of, of, and voice, I should say, um, with the, a thoughtful faith podcast and very, very strongly opinionated. And I, I love the opinions myself. Um, <laughs> but talk to me a little bit about, having that, that feeling that, no, this should work for everybody and, and how you two are able to make it work when so publicly Gina is, is, is not on the same page. It's not working, and she's very vocal about that. Talk a little bit about how it does work and what is difficult about that for you, either currently or what you had to overcome uh, over the years. So for a long time, I, I tried to to jam the, my ideal down Gina's throat when increasingly she was moving away from accepting that. So with the, the harder I held her into the space, the, the tighter I, I clenched my fists and insisting that this is the only way and this is how you will be happy and, and this will work for you, the more it wasn't. And, and ironically, the more energy I had to figure out why it wasn't. <laughs> right. So I'm like, okay, yeah. so he's telling me this. Well, I'm going to figure out why he's wrong about that. Mm. And I became very articulate. Mm. I suppose my strong opinions of the LDS Church come out, ironically, out of our relationship <laughs> because he forced me to put words around a feeling that I had that things weren't quite right, to find those words and those arguments. I, so, I created the monster. She, he really does. <laughs> we have you to, to thank or blame, depending on which way I like the first bit. Thanks, Al. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and even, and there were other things happened, which also helped me to see that it didn't always work in the way that it should. So, so the experience with Gina's first marriage breaking up, and her bishop that she was married to, you know, saying to her, you need to divorce me. And and I'm telling you, this is your bishop. You know, was a, a terrible situation to be put into. Should never have, should never have happened. I, I, you know, I painted that as a, an anomaly. That's, that's an extreme anomaly. That wouldn't normally happen. And look, he got his just desserts. He got excommunicated. So there we go. It's all justice is served, right? But then other things would happen where, that I also saw were unjust. For example, on one occasion, Gina was denied a temple recommend with no real justification at the state presidency level. She wasn't given, she wasn't given, even given a temple recommend interview that the state president had just gotten together and decided that she didn't have the right attitude. So she shouldn't have a temple recommend. Yeah. Oh, I kid you not. Uh, it's an interesting story, but anyway, I, I could see that was unjust. That was wrong. And, I, and so I went to the state president and I told him what I thought of that and, and 
that same day he gave her a temple recommend. But, but I could see that she was making valid points that there were, there were issues with the way patriarchy dealt with in particular women in the church. And, and that because it had affected my wife that had come pretty close to home. And of course, very recently we've had that situation with Gina being called to a disciplinary council last year. And once again, I was put in the position of choosing between the church I love and the woman I love. And, and once again, in this, on this occasion, I felt that it was wrong. I, I sat down with the bishop a couple of weeks before the district council. I told him what I thought of it, uh, that I didn't, you know, I didn't like him. I didn't like what he was doing, that it was wrong and, and, and it shouldn't happen. And uh, fortunately, you know, the outcome of that was different. Hooray for that. Uh, but but these that doesn't change the impact that had for Gina. So I started to see some of those things. And there were little things as well, right? Uh, just the way people treated her, seeing things differently and stuff. They, I, I wasn't completely oblivious to those things. and But I was still trying to hold her in. Uh, and I guess the kind of the shift happened for me. And I mean, it's interesting that Gina paints me as completely orthodox because some years ago I'd said to my state president that Gina thinks I'm too orthodox. And he said, well, you, you may be many things, but you're certainly not orthodox. If anything, you're an enigma. So other people weren't seeing me as orthodox as Gina was, uh, but she certainly, certainly did. So that, I mean, it's interesting, but that's her perspective. I, I respect that. I think what it means is throughout this process, I was changing. You know, over the years, I was becoming more fluid in my perception of things, more nuanced in my views, but probably in what I said and the way that I acted, and particularly in relation to Gina, because I so much wanted to hold her in our family, in the church, in the ceiling, in temple attendance, all those kinds of things, that if if I manifest those things, I was more likely to manifest them with my priesthood buddies rather than with her. And so there was probably some subtle distinction between the way I, I acted towards her and the way I acted towards others who saw me differently as challenging some of those things. But I wasn't willing to do that so much with Gina because I didn't want to undermine, I further undermine her faith. Also, I thought that's what was happening. So, but the, at, at a point, one of those moments in which, you know, we'd had a, a, a furious argument, you know, the, the air was dripping with unmet needs and we were at wit's end thinking like there's no point carrying on. Our marriage is, is destined to end up in the rubbish dump that Gina asked me to give her a priesthood blessing. And I thought that was very courageous of her because given what had just taken place, my, my thinking was, this is now my opportunity to set her right. I, I can, you know, I can use this opportunity to, to channel God, tell her what she needs to do once and for all. And, you know, if she wants to rebel against God, then that'll be on her. But a pretty <clears throat> miraculous thing happened because when I laid my hands on her head, the words that came weren't mine and they, they certainly weren't what I imagined I was going to say. And those words affirmed that uh, the path she was on was actually right. And that God 
was involved in directing the choices that she was making and the questions she was asking and, and the work that she was doing was the work of God. Uh, and that was very, very clear to me. Uh, and that was really important. And it changed my heart towards what was happening with her. And I, I reflected on, Gina had been listening to quite a bit of Mindy Gledhill at the time. And one of her songs, and one of her songs that says, when you love me without strings, I take flight. And I realized, you know, as I, as I listened to that, I reflected on that blessing that I, I was trying to tie Gina down to my ideal and I wasn't letting her explore her own spiritual path that was in connection with God. And I knew that because I'd given her that blessing and felt that so strongly. And uh, that, that kind of gave me the words. I guess Mindy gave me the words to see that I needed to let her go. Uh, and in letting her go, I would be able to enjoy her journey rather than resent and resist it. And that would build a stronger connection between us instead of our marriage becoming a, a, a shriveled uh, leaf, I guess it, it would become, it would blossom. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, you know, that's what's, what's happened. So yeah, it was divine intervention that, that really caused me to change. And I'd been praying for a long time, help Gina to change, help Gina to change. And I realized in that moment that what needed to change was me, not Gina. And, uh, and as a result of that, you know, I, I came, that was my come to Jesus moment in recognizing that in order to save my marriage, it was me who needed to change. It wasn't Gina. Mm. Thank you for sharing. That's a touching and very personal story. So thank you for sharing that. How long ago was that blessing? Probably three years ago. Three, year, three years. Yeah. Ago. It would be three years ago, 2016, I think. Yeah. Mm. You know, from your perspective, what's your recollection of what that blessing meant to you? Um, I wasn't surprised I, because everything he said in the blessing was actually everything that I had felt. That's great. So I, I wasn't surprised. I was pleased. Good. Well, that's great. No. But it's a tough thing, you know, being this, the, the person who is with this orthodox spouse. So he has an imagination for how this Mormon marriage ought to go. And it is with all of those trappings. It's with temple recommends. It's showing up and doing endowments together and doing family history together and seeing our children off on missions and through all of the milestones. And I really felt bad for him on so many levels. I, I felt that I had, I know that that's the dream and particularly that was his dream. Uh, and You should have felt bad. It was tough. <laughs> well, I offered to divorce him. I'm like, solution. <laughs> yeah, look, you know, I can set you up with somebody who's going to be all on board with this stuff. You're going to love it. Um, and you won't be miserable about the fact that I can't, I like, I literally can't show up to this religious world in the way that you want me to. I can't do it. It's not a choice. It's not a lifestyle. It's just, it, I mean, I, I kind of, I think of it now like neurons. You have neural, Mormon neural pathways and enough stress on them just snaps them and you just can't grow them back again. Right. And so you have to find another way to be in relationship with the church. And like, and I, and I, would, I look at our marriage and say, I, I can't do what you want me to do. I can't 
be what you want me to be. It's just not possible. Prayer's not helping it. Scripture study's not helping it. Church attendance is making it worse. I don't the- think she was fasting enough, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and so i just i mean i and i say that plaintively to those people who do have spouses who are differentiating from the church you can't change this there is literally nothing that you can do to change it except let it be let it be and trust it infuse it with your with your support uh, however you can give that support even if it's a if it's a confused kind of support trust it because the minute that you make it an aberration you open up this natural occurrence of growth and differentiation you open it up to all kinds of um a kind of an aberration so people can pour all sorts of negativity into that right and you can start to live into the story that this is all about you. Uh, you know, you see it so often that people begin di- differentiating. They feel the negative energy of those people around them. And rather than turn it into a God moment, they turn it into a worldly moment. Into well, this is my opportunity now to get drunk and experiment with drugs and et cetera, et cetera. And that might happen, but it doesn't need to be that way. Right. Here's a little bit of a leading <clears throat> rhetorical question, really. When, when you identify Nathan, I love the story of just allowing her and knowing that you need to, to cut those strings and let her, let her fly. Um, <laughs> the, isn't it incredible how you just get so much closer mm-hmm. in your relationship when you allow that space to have to happen and to occur. Mm-hmm. And it seems completely counterintuitive that the, the more, individual your spirituality is and the more you allow for the other person's spirituality to to change and be what it needs to be for them it you come closer together Mm. Mm. i mean how how do you feel that it that things are uh, what are some of the gifts i guess we could say the gifts of allowing for this individual individualization is that the word to say Mm. Uh, in in spiritual journeys and to, for, for me, it's expanded my horizon. So I, I've been able, not just in our relationship, but in terms of my relationship with other people, I've been able to be a lot more accepting of people's spiritual experiences outside of the church than I would have previously. And, and so uh, an interesting manifestation of this is um, yes, yesterday at church, a friend of mine and I were talking and in walked this guy we'd never met before. And so we introduced ourselves to him. It turns out his name was Truth and he was from California and he was on holiday in New Zealand. And, um, and we said to him, oh, you know, so are you a, a member of the church in California? He said, no, I'm not a member of the church of, of, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I'm currently investigating it. And so while I was here, I thought I'd, I'd visit. Uh, I've been attending in Santa Cruz. And I said, well, what are you doing here on holiday in New Zealand? He said, I've, I've come to a, a, a series of miracle meetings, which are being held at Celebration Church, which is a Pentecostal church in Christchurch. And he said, and this guy, this pastor is amazing. He's healing people and he's performing these miracles. And, and we said, well, that sounds really Christ-like. And he just said, 
oh my goodness, that's what I love about this church is it's so accepting. <laughs> it's so accepting of other beliefs. He said, you know what? If I, he said, as much as I love this pastor, in that church, if I said I was going to the, if I told him I was going to this church today, he'd tell me don't go. He'd tell me it's evil. So he said, that's what I love about this church. Everyone is so accepting and open. And it was hilarious because my mate and I would just, had just finished talking about, we just, just, we just had a seminary meeting. And we just finished talking about how two of our children don't want to go to seminary because they're quite outspoken. They ask a lot of questions and they feel as though they're being kind of shut down and excluded and, and not really, uh, they don't feel welcome. And so, and then this guy comes in and says, and, and we have this kind of, you know, come to Jesus moment where we're, <laughs> we're going, yeah, thank you for bringing us back to what the church is really like, or at least, right. it should be like. Right. you know, and, and it was great. We had this great discussion and, you know, we pulled out, you know, um, Mark, uh, he, he sat with me in sacrament and I showed him um, Mark 9, 38 to 40, which is you know, the experience with the apostles who, who say there are these people casting out devils, but they're not one of us. And Jesus says, if they're casting out devils in my name, they can't speak evil of me. They're one of us. You know, they're doing good things. They're, they're us. They're not them, you know? And, right. and, you know, he was like, that's, that's now my favorite scripture. <laughs> and, and yeah, it was, it was great. You know, it was, it just highlighted, um, I guess, responding to your question that now, you know, years ago I would have said, I would have thought to myself, oh, that can't be legit. You know, right, this guy right. can't be legit, you know? Um, but, but now uh, I'm able to accept that that could very well be legit. And, and that's awesome. If it's changing people's lives and it's bringing them closer to God, what a great thing. So I, I think that's been one real gift for me is that it's opened me up a lot more in that respect. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, I also think, you know, it's a lot of the things that we argued over uh, a lot of the, a lot of the tension and a lot of the, um, real urgency has come out of those things. You know, Gina still wants me to be different, but there's not the same necessity for that to happen because she can still explore and experience her relationship with God um, w- without me feeling white knuckled about that, without me feeling like I need to somehow change her so that she doesn't, you know, fall off the plan and, and I have to go to hell to rescue her. Right. Mm. Awesome. Gina, hmm. got a question. Yeah. Uh, well, we're just about to that hour point. So um, can I actually want to read one quick uh, paragraph from one of your blog posts, if that's all right, and then ask a question about it. Uh-oh. So, uh, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good one because I think, well, I, I, just let me read it. Uh, it says, when we adopted Finn, are you com- is it okay if I use his name? Yeah, sure. Okay. When we adopted Finn, we had him sealed to us. I remember when he was brought into the room by a temple worker as we knelt at the altar. It was as if beyond the veil, our ancestors were talking among themselves, moving themselves around with a chorus of farewells and welcomes to this child who through tears of joy became ours for eternity. So the question is, and you may not know where I'm going with this, but the question is so many people in, in my position, in your position, the one that has so many issues and problems and wants to speak out about unhealthy practices in the church. How have you found it possible to recognize the beautiful things within the church and not feel like if you recognize those things, you're giving hope to your spouse or you're bending over for them. Um, Talk. Does that make, is that a clear enough question? (laughs) 
Yeah, it is. It is. Let me just see if I can organize a response. Sure. Um, I think that for me, I suppose breaking up with belief has a lot to do with it. And when I say I break up with belief, that I don't have any attachments to a way of thinking about the divine that's definitive. I have no attachments. And I think that stands in opposition somewhat to, I suppose, the culture of the LDS church, which has, I think, for too long trafficked in certainties. I think certainties give people a sense of belonging. It puts some stable ground under the feet. But in the trajectory of the soul, there's a point in which you no longer need the certainty. You need the belonging, but you no longer need the certainty. And one's belonging shouldn't be predicated on being able to to affirm certainties. I come back to that point. I don't, it's hard for me to say that what I believe in, it's not that I don't feel that my soul has other belongings or that it is that I, that maybe there is a ground of being, we call it God, uh, but there is something more. All of the traditions point to that. And my sense points to that. All of the wisdom traditions say that there is something more. The minute that we incarcerate the idea of God in a body and a, a name and a location, then I think it ceases to be God. It just becomes a figment on a, of our own creative imagination about God, which is not to offend people who feel that they need to have that idea of God. Um, so in giving up belief and the idea, the very idea, unattaching from the idea of whether or not something is tr- right or wrong or true or false or believable or unbelievable, it actually relieves your suffering. And that's a very Buddhist idea that I think that we become very, very attached to our ideas that become, we become clingy with them and grasping of them. But what if we just let them go? Because either they, they, they're not, they don't serve any particular function. They really don't. They just, in having a belief, you're, it's really you're signing up for a group, a tribal community. But really, in terms of your spirituality, they don't, they serve a fleeting function before that you, you move into a degree of spiritual maturity. Um, and that doesn't mean that we don't have, yeah, anyway, we could talk about belief all day. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to. Uh, so giving, uh, unattaching from that surprisingly gives you the breadth and the scope to see what is sacred, what is holy, without needing to say, therefore, this is true. Because we don't know. I mean, the divine to me always seems very surprising. There are moments of divinity which don't come to us because we've manufactured them. So if we kind of allow air into this space of uh, allow ourselves to breathe in this space of contemplation, we can see the sacred. So, yes, I absolutely, that was a gorgeous experience that Finn, we had with Finn. It was so beautiful. Our ceiling was so beautiful. It was astounding. It was 
uh, such a gift for me whose marriage had gone, whose temp- previous temple marriage had gone pear-shaped. So it was such a gorgeous gift. Now, do I now therefore need to say, therefore, the temple is true and I should have a temple recommend and I should go to the temple? <laughs> and Nathan's nodding his head furiously. Yes, yes. <laughs> Currently not for me now, but I, right. I have to say it's only honest to say, yes, it was beautiful. We had, we had um, all of these young men around here last night. Uh, I don't know how many it was, 20 people. About, it was, yeah. a, it was about yeah. 20 people, including the bishopric. And it was a, an ironic priesthood's training meeting. And I was making pancakes because it was candle mass and that's what you eat on the feast of the Jesus' presentation. Feeling very resentful as I'm hearing the mutterings from the lounge room going on about keys and responsibilities and meetings and it was triggering all kinds of I just hate this church feeling. (laughs) 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 Like seriously, patriarchy starts young. I'm going to have to deconstruct this with my boys. but then the boys came in um, and we and, and they, I led a candle mass, a little ceremony of lighting the candle and reading the scripture, and, uh, and it was really lovely. And so we're always sitting with the shadow and this light, the shadow self of ourselves and the, and, the, and the light selves of ourselves and others. Does that make anything true or not true? Well, maybe that's, that's not the question we should be asking. Right. Oh, I love that thought. I love that thought. I think I know we've, we need to wrap it up here, but what I've, what I've liked just to contemplate, I'd like to hear from you, Katie, because I've kind of taken over as the, as the, the dialogue driver here, but where, (laughs) where, I think, I think so often, honestly, we talk to a lot of listeners and the grand majority of them have less than a year experience of being in, Mm. in a mixed faith marriage where you have 26 years, maybe not as defined as mixed faith marriage, but 26 years of experience behind it. Pretty much. Right? Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Gina, what you just explained is, is so important for, for those in, in my position, your position, that it, you don't have to worry about recognizing good things and good experiences uh, within the church it doesn't have to drive you to a conclusion that it is true, that it is for you, but they, there are good things. And then on the same side, Nathan, uh, you, you shared your experiences on, you recognize when there's something hurtful, you've recognized when something doesn't work for Gina or something needs to be improved mm-hmm. on the same exact side, whether you're Orthodox or nuanced believer, it's okay to recognize things aren't always perfect and things mm-hmm. need to be improved. So just mm. thank you for, I think that was a great, one of the top themes of kind of chatting with you guys today. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> we, I think we've done a few um, episodes with some couples that have been married, I don't know, anywhere from five to 10 years or less. And we've gotten a lot of flack, I think, from people that said, well, yeah, you're interviewing people who have been in this for such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. What about those couples who have, um, who are, who are, 20 plus years into their marriage and they're making it work. So Mm -hmm. this is really helpful to hear because um, like I said, you guys are a really good example, very open about your experience. So thank you. You're welcome. Pleasure. It's been enjoyable. Thank you. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, final word for you. We'll do our typical sign-off, but anything from Nathan and or Gina that you would like to to say? This could be your plug the podcast or just yeah, final thing do. that you're like, oh, I was hoping to talk about this. We have a few minutes. Please go ahead. Wow. Um, <laughs> I, I, th- I think probably the, the most important message, I think, that, that I've kind of come to for couples going through the mixed faith marriage situation is, and, and this is the, the thing I had to realize that was so important was you have to learn to love your spouse, not what they believe. I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, when I married Gina, I wouldn't have married her had I not been able to marry her in the temple. And so that became the big betrayal when she through her temple recommend at the bishop and, and said, I don't want to go back to the temple. That That's the big betrayal that she's throwing out those uh, commitments and those covenants that, that we have. Well, that's the way it looks. But I, I realized that I had not properly separated my love for Gina from my love for what Gina believes. And I think you have to do that to get into a space where you can really enjoy being married to someone. You have to love them for them. And you can still love the church, but those things don't have to be inseparably interconnected. You've got to learn to separate those things, particularly in a mixed faith marriage situation. But I think it's probably healthy anyway, but anyone in a marriage who's in the church. Great. Thank you. Gina, parting thoughts? Um, I think one of the things that has been really delightful about Nathan's and my marriage is that we can laugh together. Yeah. And there's an absurdity. When you think about it, there's an absurdity to these faith crises and these faith differentiations. <laughs> like, seriously, we're having an argument whether or not you drink a cup of tea. Like, it's, like it's bizarre. Um, Sometimes I worry, you know, that our neighbours can hear some of our arguments. And thinking, <laughs> what is she saying? <laughs> they won't hear me. They'll hear Gina. They won't hear me. There's <laughs> <laughs> an absurdity of, like, really? A white shirt. We've argued about white shirts. Um, <laughs> But, oh, but in the same- we're wearing a blue shirt today. <laughs> but so I think just juice your relationship with some, just relax a little. Like not everything depends on this one moment or this one argument. Um, enjoy each other's, like enjoy the uh, absurdity of it. Uh, have a sense of humor about it. Work on what matters. Like, in, like to be honest, what has really been the consistent for us is that we have really great sex. <laughs> it's <good>. and, <laughs> and it's got better since he's let go of the need for me to stay in the church. So, you know, there is a thing there. I <laughs> got hear a, a lot. We can add an extra 20 minutes if we... <laughs> <laughs> so I would just say have touchstones, things, whether it's your sexual relationship or it's something that you, you, you together laugh mm-hmm. at. Uh, just to give you some relief and you don't need to talk about it all the time. Every time you see your spouse, you don't need to say, wow, this is a good opportunity for us to process our faith crisis. Maybe make a day to say, okay, at this time, we're going to confine this conversation to this time and we're going to make sure that that we're not coming up. The objective is to be present with each other, not to convince each other. So there are all kinds of things that you can do to nurture and put some safeguards around your relationship. But it does need to happen. The discussion, I think, does need to happen. It absolutely does. I know there are a bunch of couples who I've engaged with online and and they say, we can't even talk about it. 
like it's a no-go area. One of the spouses has said, we're not going to talk about this. That's it. We just can't. And I, I, I don't know how long that's sustainable. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think you need circuit breakers, but you also need to carve out some space where you do talk about that. And ideally you put some principles in place like, I'm going to do more listening than trying to get my point across and those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. There's a way around of it. Right? And if there's not, just like make sure that you have a good ending to your marriage. How do you decide when it needs to end, Gina? Oh, there's a good question. <laughs> it's, if your fire or water is <laughs> off. Just give it up. <laughs> there you go. Done. It's a done deal. Gone. Yeah. Don't even put in the effort. <laughs> Nathan and Gina, thank you so much for joining us. I, I cannot promise I won't bug you for another hour at some point. So thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> no, you yeah, it's been really enjoyable. So that'd, that'd <laughs> be great. You, yeah. We didn't get to really hear a lot about you guys. But I really enjoyed listening to the podcast that you did together. And, uh, you know, I could really relate to you, Katie. Like, uh, I know how uh, hard it can be. And, uh, you know, when you, when you started to break down, I, I felt that too, you know, we've, we've, we've been there, but I also, you know, I recognize it's been really tough for Gina, you know, it's tough on both sides, yeah. this not being able to, to completely understand or empathize with one another's position. It's tough. So the work you're doing is really important. Thank you. You're helping couples negotiate something which is more important than our differences. And that's what we have in common, our love for each other. That's where we'll end it. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Marriage on a tightrope at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram. At Marriage on a Tightrope. And if you would like to be interviewed and try to top this interview, it's not a competition. (laughs) It's not a competition. (laughs) Uh, Feel free to email us. We'd love to have you on. And once again, Nathan, thank you. Talk to you next time. Grace and Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Katie. Appreciate it.